This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. The question of whether to let sleeping dogs lie when someone dies can be a tricky one for the media. This week we look at an in-depth account of a pioneer of South Island skiing with a dark Nazi past. While his backstory wasn't exactly a secret, it wasn't front and centre either in most media accounts of his life and times down the years. But now a journalist and a historian have teamed up to tell the full tale and tell us about the lesson learned. Don't judge a book by its cover and, and, and it's possible to be a nice old, familiar guy and actually have an altogether different past. And also this week on Media Watch, did you know Bob Dylan turned 80 this week? They did on RNZ National. Bob Dylan is 80 years old today. Bob Dylan's 80th birthday. Bob Dylan. There is so much said about Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. It is the 80th birthday. Bob, happy birthday. Rock and roll. But first, sport on the radio became a big casualty when COVID-19 hit the media last year, but now an aggressive Australian broadcasting outfit is bringing it back. So who are they and what's their plan? This is the last box seat in the foreseeable future. Uh, Obvious the reasons around that programming here on Trackside is going to stop and cease. That was Michael Guerin, the host of the harness racing show Box Seat on the TAB's channel Trackside TV, telling viewers that time was up for the show back on the 18th of March last year. At that time, race meetings had already been scaled back as COVID-19 precautions began to kick in and the channel's programmes were the first media casualty of COVID-19 in New Zealand. Now, when the Prime Minister announced four days later that we'd all be in a Level 4 lockdown just 72 hours after that, it sent a shiver through other commercial media companies, with the pundits pondering whether some of them would survive the inevitable slump in revenue to come. And within one week at Level 4, another sports broadcaster bit the dust. Thanks very much to Mark Kelly for producing our programme, The Radio Sport Breakfast. Stay safe today. For Monday, we will rejoin you tomorrow from 6am. Tuesday morning, Jason Pye next from Wellington. So sudden was the closure announcement by radio sports owner NZME that breakfast host Kent Johns wasn't back the next day. 24 hours later, radio sports frequencies were already carrying News Talk ZB indefinitely. It was the end of 26 years of broadcasting as radio sport, but for some, all this was the soundtrack to daily life, and they were going to miss it once it was gone. Today's been a little bit of a sad day this afternoon for me. I'm a big fan of radio sport. Yeah. And gone. That was talkback caller Peter, who called Marcus Lush on News Talk ZB the day Radio Sport closed down for good last year. Now, Radio Sport's immediate problem back then was no sport to put on the radio. Pretty much all of it everywhere was off because of COVID. But others in the industry pointed out that Radio Sport had already been losing money, listeners and presence. And just one month earlier, the owner NZME had chosen not to renew Radio Sport's rights to live New Zealand cricket games, something some pundits said proved that the writing was on the wall for Radio Sport, pandemic or not. Now, on the day that Radio Sport died in March last year, ZB host Marcus Lush tried to soothe talkback caller Peter by telling him this. Sport will, sport will come back, and, oh, yeah, I imag- yeah. and I imagine some form of sport radio will come back. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so, because there's been some great hosts. But others weren't so sure that any broadcaster here would take a punt on reviving a live radio network dedicated to sport. However, one year later, a broadcaster across the Tasman has spotted the gap in the market here and reckons it's big enough to move into. In March, Australia's Sports Entertainment Network announced plans to acquire the AM-FM radio licences the TAB used for trackside and it promised a 24-7 sports talk format nationwide with big-name Kiwi sports identities as hosts. 
Former New Zealand cricket captain Brendan McCullum, veteran commentator Ian Smith and former all-black Israel Dagg were three of the main names announced in recent weeks. And behind the scenes, former radio sports stalwart Jason Pine was hired as the content director. And within the last fortnight, there's been more signs of more momentum. Sport Entertainment Network has advertised for newsreaders, a broadcast engineer and a broadcast operations and content manager. And it's named more presenters. 2011 Rugby World Cup winner Stephen Donald, former TVNZ reporter Kirsty Stanaway, former TAB frontman Mark Stafford and young multimedia producer and reporter Sam Casey, also known as Lashes. We welcome here the Waratahs, who we played in the semi-final last year. And we know how that went down. We gave them an early holiday. But what kind of company is the Sports Entertainment Network? Well, it broadcasts live action from some of Australia's most popular sports and it has dedicated shows like AFL Nation, NRL Nation, Big Bash Nation and Football Nation. And it also has an array of other channels, marketing and events businesses and online platforms and websites. Indeed, it's talked about by some as an Aussie version of the US-based multimedia sports outfit ESPN. But the mainstay of the sports entertainment network is lots and lots of local radio stations across Australia. But while SEN is not a household name over here, it turns out it wasn't all that well-known in Australia either until quite recently, so rapidly has it grown. It grew out of a tiny marketing company called Croc Media, which was co-founded by the company's current majority owner, Craig Hutchison, just 15 years ago. Now, he started out as a not-exactly-stellar news journalist in the early 1990s, but he went on to build a national sports media empire from scratch over the past 10 years with incremental acquisitions and mergers. Now, Craig Hutchison was due to unveil plans to the media here in Auckland next Wednesday, but once again, COVID chaos has got in the way. Top stories this morning. New Zealanders in Melbourne will be stuck there for at least another week. Flights to and from the city remain on pause after Victoria went into lockdown last night. And will New Zealand let the Australian Prime Minister into the country after his visit to Melbourne? And the lockdown in Victoria has given SEN's sports stations there plenty to talk about. Lockdown is coming. We're just waiting to be told. As COVID exposure sites multiplied by the hour yesterday, taking in the MCG in Marvel Stadium, the mood became one of inevitability. Well, that was the voice of Jared Waitley, one of the star broadcasters in Australia for the Sports Entertainment Network. And there he was on air last Thursday with the latest lockdown looming in Victoria. So this week I asked Jared, will the New Zealand network they're setting up be much like the radio sport that we had pre-COVID? And will it have the same blokey vibe that some say was one reason they don't miss that now that it's gone? But first, Jared told me how COVID was once again throwing all their work up in the air. Colin, it's remarkable to be back in the same position. It has an eerie feeling. For a couple of days, it's had an ominous feeling. Fingers crossed that seven days sees Victoria through this time. But if you if you walked out and polled people, I think they would probably tell you through bitter experience that we expect it to be longer. Well, we did uh, hope Mr Hutchinson, your chief executive, would be here next week to announce plans for SENZ. <laughs> we, we don't know quite how that will happen or we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, but SEN is not a well-known name in this country. And interestingly, on the website, it says our commitment at this company is to create communications for each specific market presented with a passionate parochial lens. And do you think that's what they'll try and apply when they set up here in New Zealand? So I'd had a, a gentle connection with your sports radio previously in New Zealand through cricket and the like. So when that fell during COVID, that was felt in Australia. 
And then in Australia, we are carved up as Victoria follows the AFL with a passion, as does South Australia and Western Australia. But North, New South Wales and Queensland are rugby league town. So to tailor stations that absolutely um, tap into the, the pulse of the sporting town, that has been the advancement really of the past three years under our direction and management. Yeah, but Jared, the suspicion here will be that it will end up with commentaries of, I don't know, Aussie states playing in the Big Bash League or something like that, and uh, and that'll come down the pipe from Australia and it might not be things that our local fans would really want to uh, dig into? I wouldn't think that would be the case. So I know some of the backroom staff. I know the on-air talent in Brendan McCullum and Ian Smith and the like. I would fully expect that our ambition is to have New Zealand test cricket on the radio, wherever it's played around the world and at whatever time. And the station will be absolutely parochial to what happens uh, from my perspective across the ditch. But just how local, Jared, do you think fans here should expect it to get? I mean, when we had uh, a, a New Zealand network, you know, they had people in around the grounds. I mean, can we expect things like, you know, top-level club rugby or something like that would find uh, a bit of airtime on SEN or even, you know, maybe sort of slightly fringe sports like back in the day, National Lawn Bowls Championships were broadcast. Do you think <laughs> yep. it'll get, get down to that kind of local level? What happens in Australia where there's a a Queensland station that works its way through all the different sport locally and, and the Sydney station does the same. And over in Perth, Western Australia sometimes feels like a different country. They tailor the product to what they are passionate about, which is their local football competition as well as the national football competition. So I think ultimately for station management in New Zealand, that would be their brief. The strings won't be pulled from Australia uh, the management that comes into place in New Zealand will make those decisions on the ground. And, and I, I would give you the assurance that that's the case study that happens here in Australia. Well, the, the company itself, it's really risen very quickly. And a lot of this appears to be kind of underpinned by the purchase of local radio licences. I can see 28 across Australia in the last 18 months. It's an absolutely remarkable company. So it was this idea that Craig Hutchison had of buying radio licences town by town across regional Australia, metropolitan Australia. And really, he has achieved what only a national broadcaster has done previously in Australia, of having signals and stations the length and breadth of the country. And during COVID, rather than contract, the decision was made to aggressively expand. I mean, a lot of this seems to be uh, attached to the, the drive and vision of Craig Hutchison. Interestingly, he was a journalist, like, I think like yourself, but uh, not, not especially acclaimed journalist, Craig Hutchison. But um, is there a commitment to challenging these sports as well as just you know broadcasting them and, uh, and getting the, the personalities on? My brief in coming to the station was to create a program which was essentially a, a news and current affairs program for sport. So whatever the key issue in, in sport is today, whether it's the sandpaper scandal re-emerging on the Australian cricket front and talk to the, the chief executive or the interim chief executive and his simple refusal to answer the questions about what's happened in the past and, and reopening investigations or the Collingwood Football Club, which is the biggest football team, which is in the middle of a political struggle off-field with the, the current president is about to be challenged by a, by a rival group and that, that is on the horizon and, and looks to take power. So we speak to the Collingwood president that day. We talk to the, the bosses of, of the various sports at, at the key moments where, where they, they are in vogue. So 
yes, it's it's both. I think a sports station has to have the live rights to the action. We aspire, and I think it's a pretty good model, we aspire to be more than that. And uh, I'm sure that that's what you was having. Knowing Ian Smith, that's what you will get in the corresponding slot of um, of what I do once SENZ starts. Yeah, that's right. I, I do remember there was something about the Australian cricket team and some sandpaper. I think they did get a mention yeah. in the news here. At the time. <laughs> One thing, Jared, that uh, when Radio Sport did fold here, there were some people that found it, you know, it became overbearingly kind of blokey. Is there uh, a kind of male edge to SEN? Because I look, for example, it, it says, you know, talent-led shows are a big deal. It mentions a, a, a few women's names among the list here, but there's a picture of um, nine blokes, uh, no woman amongst them. Is it a company that values putting a bit of diversity on here? Yes, there's a historical lag in sporting media in Australia, and I think that's probably reflected around the world. And there is, uh, well, it's an overdue push to uh, to reframe that. And certainly off-field, there has been a, a lack of opportunity too often in sports media for females, which is progressively being rectified. So there is the recognition that that has been a, a flaw in the past within our media, and this would be true on a television front as well, and a determination to open up those opportunities so that the next generation of broadcaster that comes through would be equally represented or at least the possibility of being equally represented. What about the listeners, though, Jared? I mean, is it true what the age says here, that there's an advertising target of 25 to 35-year-old males? Because I imagine if that is the target, a lot of women probably wouldn't be um, attracted by an output that was uh, targeting them. The stronghold historically and internationally of what sports radio has been has been, I think it's 25 to 39-year-old male, and we have tried to lift the horizons on that front. If you limit your conversation and pitch only to that blokey idea of what sport has been in the past, then you are frankly living in the past. I would feel absolutely confident knowing the people who are going to be on air. That's not what you would hear, and it should be broader because... I don't think sport is a distraction to real life, but in the moments where real life can become absolutely overwhelming, sport's a sanctuary. So you should be able to find programs that speak to you regardless of gender and age because when the all-blacks play, they don't just lock the gates and say only 25 to 35-year-old males are allowed to be interested in this. It is a national obsession, and the sports conversation, I think, should reflect that. Well, you are, of course, uh, dealing with um, a real story, as you mentioned earlier. There are moments where, you know, real life intrudes and gets overwhelming. Sport has to fit in with that. I guess that's exactly what you're doing at the moment, the prospect of a, of a seven-day lockdown. It may disrupt uh, the plans for uh, your boss to um, to come over and uh, announce what they were hoping to do next week. But we'll see. They may do that without being able to be here. But um, thanks very much for bringing us up to date. Colin, lovely to chat. It was Jared Waitley, one of the star broadcasters in Australia for the Sports Entertainment Network, the outfit preparing to launch a nationwide 24-7 sports radio network here in New Zealand. And we may know more about when that will happen next week. We'll keep you posted here on Media Watch.
Last week, Christchurch's daily paper The Press published a story it would have been reluctant to put in the paper. Under the headline, Inclusion of Past Offending Unfair, it said the print media watchdog The Media Council had upheld three complaints about a story The Press published back in March. It was about a man who was not well known who had died in an accident. And it wasn't the paper's first story about the tragedy, but this one mentioned the fact that the man was convicted for a sexual offence against a child a decade earlier. The Media Council ruled that printing this was unfair to the man's grieving family, but four out of the 11 council members considering the complaint disagreed, believing that the offending was not trivial and was newsworthy. The Media Council's principles include provision for special consideration for those suffering from trauma or grief, and a majority of the Media Council did not accept that there is a blanket obligation to publish information that's irrelevant to the main point of the story, especially if it's likely to be distressing to the family of the deceased. So does this mean then that papers should never report distressing facts about people when they die, if the person's family would likely be upset? Well, the Media Council said no, this was a marginal case determined on individual facts. The editor of the press, Kamala Heyman, told the Media Council it was standard practice for stuff to include significant and known facts about an individual when reporting a death. Indeed, she said it would be misleading to omit such facts unless there were exceptional circumstances. And she offered as an example the case of Willie Huber, who died in August last year. Now, he was acknowledged as a pioneer of the Mount Hutt ski field, but he was also a Nazi more than 70 years earlier and an SS soldier during World War II. Kamala Heyman said his family may have believed this part of his life should not have been reported when he died, but some members of the Jewish community had urged staff to do so because they considered the facts too important to be forgotten or omitted in the coverage. Well, this month, a much fuller account of Willie Huber's dark past has now appeared in print. Hayden Donnell takes a look at that now and asks its authors how it was done. When Willie Huber died aged 97 last year, the headline on his obituary in the Christchurch Press read, Canterbury's ski field pioneer and former Nazi soldier dies. The story was accompanied by a picture of a grinning Huber with skis slung over his shoulder. At the time, many people argued that Huber's service in a regime that carried out the worst genocide in human history should have got higher billing than his work founding Mount Hutt's ski field. But the obituary actually marked a step forward in the media's acknowledgement of Huber's military history. Looking back through the decades, most of the stories on Huber were soft-focused tributes. In 1997, the Ashburton Guardian ran the headline, A Mountain, Two Field Mice and a Dream above a story that focused heavily on Huber's bond with a pair of mice inside an alpine hut where he lived while surveying the skiing conditions on Mount Hutt. In 2014, the press labelled Huber a heartland hero in an article that praised him for winning an Iron Cross in service to what it called the German army. Those media outlets could at least offer the excuse that Huber hadn't openly acknowledged some of the more disturbing facts about his Nazi service. Not so TVNZ Sunday, which in 2017 ran a documentary titled Father of the Mountain. In it, Huber admitted to volunteering for the Waffen-SS, one of the most brutal and highly indoctrinated divisions of the Nazi forces. In the documentary, he excitedly described seeing Hitler in person like this. Yes, I saw Hitler when I was nine years old. Could you imagine? And he was smiling, look at us, put his arm out up as he always did. Huber added that he had to give it to Hitler, who was very clever and, quote, brought Austria out of the dump. 
An estimated 65,000 Jews were murdered in Austria during World War II, and more than 125,000 more were forced to flee the country. Despite his soft spot for Hitler, Sunday described Huber as a remarkable survivor of the war. It honed in primarily on his legacy at Mount Hutt, accompanying the then 94-year-old up the mountain to record this exchange with some skiers. Hello, boys. You enjoy your skiing? Yes. You had some skiing already this morning? I have to hang on to somebody. I'm a wee bit dotry. I'm a little old man. The documentary provoked anger, with Jewish groups arguing it sanitised Huber's record and elided his potential role in wartime atrocities. Writing in the spin-off after Huber's death, New Zealand Jewish Council spokeswoman Juliet Moses asked why a Waffen-SS soldier had escaped real scrutiny from our press for so many years. What troubles me more than an unrepentant Nazi dwelling in Aotearoa is the adulatory treatment he received. Where were the probing questions about his activities, his embrace of Nazi ideology, his amends, how he got to New Zealand on a work visa? This month, North and South went some way to addressing that deficiency. Its cover story, The Nazi Who Built Mount Hutt, traces Huber's war history, putting him near the site of a civilian massacre in the French town of Oradeur sur Glane. It proves he lied in his New Zealand immigration forms, omitting his service in the Waffen-SS, which had been deemed a criminal organisation by that point. I spoke to the story's authors, military historian Andrew MacDonald and feature journalist Naomi Arnold, about how and why they carried out this investigation. Kia ora, Naomi and Andrew. Welcome to Media Watch. Thanks for having us. So congratulations on the story, first of all. It's really exhaustive. It's beautifully written. What drew you, I think it was you originally, Andrew, to the idea of investigating Willie Huber's military history? Well, I, I, um, I missed the 2017 documentary program it was on TV, and I only saw it at the time that Mr. Huber had passed away. I looked at the story that was being told uh, around his service during the war, and I could see that even looking at the photographs, there were inconsistencies. And then secondly, you say that you uh, were just doing this and that and the other thing. And in this very indoctrinated Wapen SS unit, maybe there's a few more questions that need to be asked here. I wanted to get to the bottom of it reasonably quickly. How did the actual practical stuff play out? How did you actually end up tracking down his military record? It's kind of old school journalism, really. And if you don't know the answer, find somebody who does. It wasn't at all difficult to write away and get his service records from Bundesarchiv in Berlin. So um, another key part of, of building that picture of Mr. Huber's wartime was actually dealing with Giacomo Lichtner at uh, Victoria University. He very kindly took the, the, the skeleton, for want of a better words, of place names Mr Huber's division was at during the Second World War and compared them with an extensive database of the Holocaust, including war crimes. So all of a sudden, we were able to very quickly build a comprehensive picture of his war service. Without question, he was within very close proximity to a number of war crimes, both on the Russian front and in France. Here's a slightly chilling example. Imagine all of a sudden if all of the people in the North Island disappeared. They were just gone. And then your tank crew went through that, and it had been there previously when there were several million people living and getting on there as best they could under the, under the jackboot, and then they're gone. Now, how can you not 
not acknowledge that, that that vacuum of humanity right before your eyes. And 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 then there's the mass shootings and, and the graves and and the the, the the digging up and burning of corpses, the covering of the tracks, if you will. He absolutely knew what was going on, even if he personally probably didn't have a direct hand in concentration camps and the um, mobile killing squads of 1941. If uncovering this service record was a reasonably straightforward task, it's hard journalism but doable journalism, why hadn't it been done earlier? Ah, Well, I think that's a question that you might have to ask the other journalists. I remember when I was a cadet reporter in Wellington back in the very late 1990s and I tried to find out what had happened with the investigations into some 40 suspected Nazi war criminals who'd come to New Zealand. And I recall just running into brick wall after brick wall after brick wall. So the message I took from that at the time is people don't want to talk about this. They they don't want to know. Um, it's gone. It's done. It's in the past. So uh, to some extent, I think that kind of thinking also helped Mr. Huber cover his tracks. I think one of the quotes that from, from one of Naomi's interviews is actually covers that very nicely, and that is that New Zealand kind of allowed him not to have a conscience about his war service. Naomi, you went to Methven to talk to some of the people who lived with Willie Huber, knew him pretty well. Do you think that they didn't want to talk about the past, and they wanted to accept the basically kindly, jovial old man that they saw in front of them? Um, so the people I spoke to hadn't even heard about the the Wolf and SS involvement until quite recently, and by then they'd built up 30 or more years of interactions with Willie, and he was a good friend. You know, he was a um, close friend of a couple of people I'd spoken to, and then very well known in the community. When they did hear about it through the media, they were pretty outraged about the coverage that there was. That that, was... That's the interesting thing, though. When they did know, they were annoyed that people had uncovered it. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, I mean, look at social media. We take all of our information from people we know and trust, and they were immediately very defensive um, about this man. And they, I mean, I guess it's almost like a closing of ranks to protect Willie and the family, obviously. I, I mean, it's not a nice thing to, to come out. And I, I mean, to be honest, the extent of Willie's involvement has, didn't really come out until this, this story. So I'm not sure what they would feel now, but what I suspect they'd feel is it's all in the past. Willie was our friend, um, and we love him, and... That's that's the end of it, basically. You spoke to some people that were friends of his, and they said, look, why is the media concentrating so much on this Holocaust stuff and not on the two field mice that he fostered in a hut on Mount Hutt <laughs> when he was founding the ski field? Yeah, so the mice came up over and over, and it's just it's a really interesting example, um, just for me looking back through all the stories from the 90s and things, of how something that's in one story gets picked up and then repeated over and over and over to sort of build this myth of a person. And then the story is is that um, there was these two mice that lived under a hut, up Mount Hutt, at about 2,000 metres altitude that Willie designed and lived in when he was surveying the ski field. He was alone, so these little mice became his friends and he named them Fairy and Mary. And one morning, a very, very cold morning, he woke up and one of them was frozen to the floor in the corner of the hut. He was devastated. He shed tears and he took the other mouse into a sleeping bag to try and keep it warm, but that died as well. So that story has been repeated throughout. I mean, there's, I read a book called White Gold, The History of Mount Hutt. It's, it's in a lot of the news stories about these two little mice. And people, everyone I talked to told me about these two little mice. I mean, people just 
latch onto these colourful details that show what an essentially good human he was, you know, and they want to share that with you and try and get you to understand that he wasn't a baddie, he was a good guy. Was there an element of narrative building by Willie Hooper, though? Well, I mean, to be honest, I think reporters contacted him and he just chatted. He was quite entertaining. Like, if you see videos of him, um, there's a few promotional videos of Mount Hutt. Reporters appeared to enjoy spending time with him. He just probably just answered their questions and told them the standout moments that had... He, he could remember from that time. Yeah, I, I, this is response to both of you, but do you think that the fact that reporters enjoyed spending time with him, do you think that that prevented journalists from really asking the tough questions, even after they found out about the fact of his military involvement? Well, I think that there's um, some lessons here for, for all journalists. When you turn up to an interview, don't get too involved with the subject. It's very easy to um, be pally and friendly with, with subjects who want that kind of interview. Just occasionally one comes along that um, maybe there needs to be a little bit more scrutiny on the story that they're telling. When he admitted to at least part of that in 2016 and 2017, there doesn't seem to have been a, a whole lot of objective scrutiny of that. When Cameron Bennett originally from Sunday was given this information, SS, I think that he possibly was in this to tell a story about this incredible old man That's who found the sea field yeah. and he got blindsided by this it does feel like they sort of went to his house and were like oh what's this and Willie said oh <laughs> and then I feel like they sort of scrambled and I, I don't know this for sure but as a reporter that's what it feels like to me that um, they quickly had to do this because the two parts of the story like Father of the Mountain was the name of the piece and then by the way I was you know I remember Hitler <laughs> I, I saw Hitler once you know it was just so diametrically opposite. And, and praised him. And, and, yeah, and, and, and he was very, you know, he, the excitement on his face as he was recalling that story. Maybe the Sunday show got ambushed with this information about Willie Huber's military past, but there also wasn't a lot of coverage after that information came out to sort of follow up on those disclosures, right, until now. Not one person out of the many hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions who watched that documentary felt strongly enough to give Immigration New Zealand a call and say, hey, are you aware that this guy disclosed to having been in the Wafen SS? It would have been a really simple matter then for immigration authorities to take a look at his paperwork and see that he'd said he claimed in his immigration papers he was in the Austrian army and the rank he gave was a standard German army rank, not a Waffen SS uh, rank. So it would have been really obvious up front that he had, he had told lies on his immigration entry paperwork how much scrutiny are we are we putting people through when they when they come here? And your story basically concludes that he never faced any kind of reckoning over what he did in World War Two. Did we fail as journalists and probably as a country to bring a measure of justice? Yeah, I, I'm going to go ahead and say yeah, but I, I do understand the context in which some of that happened. I mean, it's easy to sit in an armchair and be critical. And as far as the uh, the journalism goes, well. You know, I do have some sympathy for journalists who find themselves confronted with a story unexpectedly on the spot. But nonetheless, it is their um, profession and there is an onus of responsibility to to remain objective and where you don't have the information to go and actually seek it out and, and, and put it forward and, and test it. That was historian Andrew MacDonald and journalist Naomi Arnold, the authors of The Nazi Who Built Mount Hutt, an article in North and South all about Willie Huber, who died in August last year. And there they were talking to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell.
Bob Dylan, I wrote you a song. Today's your birthday, if I'm not wrong. If I'm not mistaken, you're 50 today. How are you doing, Bob? What do you say? That was how Mark Rogers opened RNZ's weekly American music show last Monday, and that tune from Loudon Wainwright III actually marked Dylan's 50th birthday 30 years ago, but it got another run on Monday's Nashville Babylon special, along with an hour's worth of Bob Dylan covers. And why not? Musical anniversaries and musicians' birthdays are a theme of the show. Bob Dylan, the man himself, is turning 80. But by the time Bob Dylan's 80th birthday had wound up that night, RNZ National listeners might have heard more than they really wanted. It started before seven on Morning Report. Then you. People call. Yes, it was a big day in the music world. Bob Dylan turns 80 years old today. Happy birthday, Bob. And after that, RNZ's Katie Doyle asked RNZ's own Mr Music, Nick Bollinger, this question, with Like a Rolling Stone still playing in the background. What would be an album or a song that you would recommend to someone who's just sort of discovering Bob Dylan? When you're talking about someone who's been making music for the best part of 60 years, it's so hard to bring it down to one moment. Next up on RNZ National was 9 to Noon, where the daily book reading was also Bob Dylan flavoured. Well, today, as some of you may be aware, is Bob Dylan's 80th birthday. Our reading marks this and acknowledges the work of the Nobel laureate. The story's genesis is the Dylan concert in Wellington, February 2003, the 1500th of his so-called never-ending tour. Bob Dylan plays the Queen's Wharf Event Centre. He is 61. It is the 1500th Bob Dylan concert of the so-called never-ending tour. And it was feeling like the never-ending birthday on RNZ National with more to come. Part one of Bob Dylan's New Zealand, written and read by Andrew McCullum. Part two, tomorrow on 9 to Noon. And like a Rolling Stone, again, the choice of music in the background there. After that, Bob's big day didn't make the cut in the midday report news hour or on afternoons with Jesse Mulligan. But it turned out Jesse had got in early by marking the day a week earlier with a tribute band. Music legend Bob Dylan turns 80 on Monday. Wellington band The Zimmermans are joining us in the studio today to celebrate. After afternoons with Jesse came the panel with Wallace Chapman and with two boomer age guests in Pam Corkery and Gary McCormick. It's happy 80th birthday, Bob Dylan. This is Meet Me in the Morning from Blood on the Tracks. Dylan or Robert Zimmerman was born at It Mary was nice to hear a Dylan song that wasn't like a Rolling Stone. And panellist Pam Corkery offered up a choice personal anecdote or two about freeloading MPs. Some corporates shouted about 20 MPs. I'm just telling this very quickly. And one member of parliament who's still there and I won't name turned around to me at one stage and said, Does Dylan write his own lyrics? <laughs> After Gary's turn, Wallace Chapman had his go. I'm just trying to think, there is so much Gary said about Bob Dylan, so much. Certainly is, and so much of his music that could have been played. But when Wallace farewelled his panellists and listeners on Monday, it was to the strains of the same old song again. See you tomorrow, 3.45. Well, after that, all 90 minutes of Checkpoint on RNZ National contained no traces of Dylan, but there was more a little later on Nights with Brian Crump. At half past seven, a special documentary marking Bob Dylan's 80th birthday. Bob Dylan born again. Because he was, wasn't he? Bobby and I have travelled together. 
laugh together and pray together. And after the 11pm news that night, Brian Crump introduced Nashville Babylon to round out the -the round-the-clock coverage of Bob's big birthday. Bob Dylan. And of course, Mark Rogers is going to mark that very special milestone. Of course he did. Mark Rogers didn't play Like a Rolling Stone, by the way, but he did play I Shall Be Released. And as the clock ticked towards midnight, Mark brought it to a close like this. Bob, happy birthday, and as I'm wont to say, thanks, man. If only all the tributes that day were as economical as Mark Rogers there. Now, if the icon of the boomer age to makes it to 90, and so does RNZ, the fans of Zimmerman, on Zimmer Frames by then, will know what to expect. That's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, though we'll be back again with Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and then back again with Media Watch at the same time next weekend, here on RNZ National.